Hello, good morning. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting, and this is the second episode of Monday Week, which is our new weekly podcast on a Monday morning, going through the news from over the weekend and the big stories for the week. Uh, and this week, we're joined by Deepa Deb, who is head of Real Estate UK at Denton's. And uh, let's crack straight on with uh, with, with, with today's uh, today's episode. So, Deepa, let's start with everybody's favourite subject, uh, which is Brexit and and uh, obviously the last minute toing and throwing over will there, won't there be a deal? Um, obviously, uh, a no deal is actually probably quite good for lawyers, isn't it? And it creates a lot more uncertainty, which is uh, which is good for the advisory market. But how are you guys planning as a business to help your clients? What what has been you know, what what are you saying to people when asked at the minute? What should we do? Thanks, Andy. Well, I, I hasten to say I never thought I'd see the day that I'd be pleased to be talking about Brexit again. Um, and you're absolutely right. We've been talking to uh, clients on a pan-European basis as to how best to prepare for Brexit. And a lot of our clients are working on the basis that we'll end up with no deal and therefore having the right contingency plans in place, such that if Boris does manage a deal, then that'll be good news. Um, some of the concern that, that we have and that our clients share is that actually the pandemic has been quite a significant distracting factor from some of the work that really needed to do to properly prepare for some of the immediate effects of uh, Great Britain exiting. So there is a little bit of concern around whether we are really ready to face uh, a no-deal Brexit. I guess time will tell. So one other story, obviously, that many people are waking up with this morning is around whether there will or won't be a Brexit deal. Um, uh, now, of, of course, from a legal for the legal profession, um, you guys are obviously a little bit hamstrung, aren't you, by by licensing and, and whether uh, you're allowed to actually practice, uh, and that that is something that the uh, that, that that quite actually weirdly could be quite a boon for the Dublin office market, couldn't it? Deeper, uh, what what are, what has Denson's been? up to in this regard how are you going to continue acting uh, seamlessly across europe yeah thank you andy i have to say i think our investment in ireland and dublin is timely for all the reasons that that you say and as as you know we recently announced the hire of andrew muckie and his partner in our dublin office he joins from william fry with 20 years plus experience in ireland's property market he will be heading up our real estate function so he's joining evan saunders peter o'brien um, both corporate specialists um, and also um, Shane O'Donnell, uh, Merida Dale and Garrett Steens, who between them cover uh, banking as well as restructuring and insolvency. So we actually have a full service specialist offering in Dublin, which we think is great timing. So Deepa, let me ask you about um, one piece that was in Property Week last Friday, talking about potential, the potential for, for schemes that aren't green to be unfundable going forward um, and it was it was brendan wallace um who's the uh, the co-founder of, of fifth wall basically saying that non-green schemes will be uninvestable going forward um and, and that's obviously something that you you know you must be seeing right across the board with different different clients that are having to repurpose old buildings or look at how they structure investments going forward and and what's your view on that as a as a global law firm Thanks, Andy. Well, I think it's a very pertinent topic at the moment. Um, and it's, it's not just limited to buildings being green. It's the whole sort of 
environmental, social and governance agenda, the ESG agenda. And it's really interesting. I remember when um, the government first introduced the notion of having green leases and some of the banks in particular taking that uh, by by the horns. And, and we spent quite some time in, um, in law firms looking at ensuring our leases had green clauses in them, if you like. And it's really interesting, fast forward to now, where actually the sustainability agenda has been catapulted to almost the top of most IC agendas and speaking to our clients across uh, pan-Europe, one of the things that people are saying to us loudly and clearly is that for future investments, it's going to be absolutely vital that they tick those boxes around environmental, social and governance. And so we're currently working with a number of our clients to ensure they've got the right policies, procedures and advisors in place. So that, And this for real estate, it's quite pertinent because it isn't just about the end product. It's about every element of, of producing that end product, whatever your building is, and it's sector agnostic. It's really quite important. It's not about ticking some boxes. Um, now it's it's about actually ensuring that you're building long-term and sustainable. And the big controversy, as you know, is always going to be the the kind of the value proposition. You know, if it renders the construction process to be more expensive and longer, is that going to be viable? Mm, and mm. so you've got that tug between the right thing to do and actually what it costs to do it. And, and one of the other stories that, again, has, has sort of been crept up again over the weekend has been the latest in the cladding saga with suggestions that people might uh, essentially be have to uh, be having to take out a second mortgage. Now that's something that, that you guys as a business are doing quite a lot on. Um, how is this cladding kind of going to play out, do you think? Yes, absolutely. The, the, we've been involved since Grenfell, actually, and since the Grenfell Inquiry, we've been involved with a lot of our developer clients, a lot of our institutional landlord clients looking at ways in which to investigate their portfolio of buildings, ways in which to ascertain the risk level and and ways to act on it. And we've always known, actually, and we've been advising our clients, certainly, that it is a bit like a ticking time bomb in the sense that our government don't seem to have really grappled with the issue at the heart of this, which is we've got a whole host of buildings which are now no longer fit for purpose and mm. they will require significant works to be done in order to make them fit for purpose but who's going to fit the bill for it? Mm. So from, from initial analysis, it looks like the bill is to the tune of about £15 billion. And, and is that something you think the government is going to eventually have to do? Well, it's really interesting. Now, here's where being a global law firm is a bit of, it brings it with it some benefits because we've been working with our colleagues in Australia to look at whether there are any lessons that can be learned from Australia's, if you like, equivalent of Grenfell. So in 2014 in Melbourne, there was a similar fire. Uh, interestingly, n nowhere near the fatalities that we suffered at Grenfell, but very similar in terms of the way in which buildings were built, the kind of cladding that was used and the ultimate problem. And the big difference you can see between the way the Australian government have responded and our own is that number one, there was a, there was a central government inquiry and a central government led interim 
sort of recommendations made rather than leave it for local authority level investigations and and do what you will or not. Um, And it was really very much treated as a priority as opposed to with our government where, you know, we've had what three years plus and still no, no particular solution beyond the, um, the 1.6 billion set aside, which is nowhere near good enough. So Mm. I think ultimately it is the case. The government are going to have to step up and look at this much more centrally, but I'm not suggesting that the answer lies with the government alone. There's a responsibility to be taken by building owners, um, developers, the, the construction industry general in general. Um, and and you know and it may be that you have a combination of loans and government support to get us through this, but we do need to we do need to address it rather than continue to skirt around the the edges. Mm. Well, another another good example of of the can being kicked down the road for some years is is one of the other stories over the last couple of days around business rates and decisions by various supermarkets to pay back. A lot of the uh, the, the rates um, handouts that they got from the government, which basically waived business rates for hard pressed businesses and supermarkets, obviously done pretty well. Um, what this is something that the industry has been tackling for for over ten years. I mean, I remember during my BPF tenure leading a campaign on empty rates that got everybody together, and we got a got about a billion pound back from Gordon Brown when he was in charge. Um, and nothing's really improved much, has it, Deeper? What, what, what do you think should happen here? Are, are these, are these, first, I mean, firstly, are these companies right to give back the, the rates uh, handouts that they've got? Well, I think it's, I thought it was a really interesting story, actually, around Tesco's decision. Um, and, you know, I, I think these are sort of business-led decisions, which every business has to make, depending on its particular particular circumstance i think in circumstances where you are making um pretty hefty dividend payments to then also rely on government aid and support does seem a little bit incongruous having said that as you quite rightly point out the the rates system in our country is in really in much need of review particularly in the way that it applies to retail you know, treating it as a good old-fashioned property tax, you know, where where you have uh, differences in rateable value, for example, when rateable values drop, not being able to reflect that in rates as quickly as one should, and also fixing values to 2015, when actually the value of retail has changed significantly, as we know, since 2015, just doesn't seem at all um, fair, actually, or right. And as you say, it is another example of, the can being kicked down the road where, where we know that we need to, to deal with this particular part of the sector. Of course, the issue is it does, it is quite an easy, ready revenue stream for the government. Yeah, and 31 so, billion pounds of it as well. It's quite a lot. It quite is. a lot of money. Quite right. And in circumstances where we are now significantly in debt on the wake, <laughs> in the wake of the pandemic, you can see why the government's delayed looking at rates reform until 2023. But the reality is that, that, that the climate has changed since rates were introduced. And the government, again, is going to have, I think there'll be a lot of pressure that mounts and and certainly firms like us who act for a, a huge number of retailers will be part of the you know the the lobbying to to look at reform in a meaningful way mm. of course you also act for industrial real estate owners as well and they would potentially not be quite so happy with 
with things changing because they, they have it pretty good at the minute, don't they? Um, and not just in the, that's reflecting old values, but the, the, the rates regime doesn't really represent, uh, it doesn't represent the seismic shift that we've seen in online shopping over the last five years or the reliance that people now have on industrial real estate. Um, how do you think those guys might respond to it? Yeah, quite right. You're quite right. And, you know, and I think when people talk about the demise of traditional retail, you know, it's it's all too easy to think of it as being directly um, correlating simply to the rise in e-commerce. There are a number of factors involved, including, I think, the rates regime. But, but you know, when I talk about reform of the rates regime, really, one has to look at it holistically. One has to look at all of the users um, in the round and the manner in which the users um, make, make their money and how one can charge in the right way so as to, so as not to damage the continuing growth of these very important sectors, but equally so that you're not penalizing one sector over another. Mm. Um, so let, let's move on. One of the other stories that, uh, again, was in the press, uh, on Sunday was, were the number of calls for Joe Anderson, the other Joe in politics right now, the calls for Joe Anderson, mayor of Liverpool, to resign after being arrested for uh, on corruption charges. Um, and these involve property deals in the city. Uh, it's, it's further bad, bad news for the reputation of the real estate world, isn't it? Well, it certainly didn't make for easy reading, I have to say. Um, but it is really interesting, Andy, because when you think about what we've seen whenever we've had global financial crisis, is we have seen the, a rise in the incidences of fraud. Uh, one of my fellow partners, Darren Allen, is leading our strategy on this, and we've We've come up with a fraud prevention and response hub for companies entirely free of charge for companies to dip into, which contains a sort of fraud, fraud response checklist and a fraud audit tool, comparative tool of remedies and rights globally. And the reason for this is that we've learned from previous financial crisis that unfortunately, uh, people can, can either deliberately or inadvertently desperately do the wrong thing and companies just need to be prepared and know how to react in those circumstances. Thank you then to Deeper Deb, Head of Real Estate UK at Denton's. Uh, and we'll be back again next Monday with uh, the latest uh, analysis and views on the, uh, the big stories of the week. So thanks very much for listening. I've been Andrew Teacher at Blackstock Consulting. See you again soon.